Normally I'm doing worship. Uh, I don't get to sit in worship. And it's a good change of pace for me. Um, I'm excited to be with you guys here today. Uh, tell you a little bit about me. I'm on staff up at Riverside, like Daryl said. I'm one of the worship pastors up there, and I also do communications, which is web stuff and graphic design, fun little interesting things that I can do quietly in my office. Uh, it's nice when you work in the church to have a task that you can shut a door on and just be alone, because uh, I really enjoy getting to just have some quiet moments. But it's a real honor for me to be asked to, to, to teach here this morning. I don't take it lightly. Uh, one of the things I got to do a few years ago was be a senior pastor of a church in San Marcos. And I did the week in, week out teaching. And I think it's a really great thing that, that this summer we're kind of rotating people in, that Michael gets to take a break, that David and Scott and all around. I think it's really great. It gives guys like me a chance to do some of this. But it's also just really good to rest. And I feel like that may be uh, a word for some of y'all in here. It's okay to rest. Some of you might need to just kind of take a, a day off from work um, and pursue some rest. So if that's for someone in here, there you go. Uh, but this summer we have been talking in all of our communities about hearing God. What does it mean to hear God? Uh, what is it like to hear from heaven is the language that I use, but hear the voice of the spirit. And then respond. And we've been looking through the scriptures at telling stories about people in the text that heard from God, how they responded, and some of the things that we can glean from that. And that whole topic is something that's very important to me. I had uh, an experience a handful of years ago where I, I heard the Lord talk to me in a way that really shifted and, and changed my life. And I didn't have a grid for for what I came to understand as prophecy. I didn't have a grid for the Holy Spirit speaking, but I had an experience. And I've been walking with him in the last, oh man, nine years now since that time. And, and have been profoundly changed by my experience of hearing him on a daily basis. And so this morning I want to share a little bit of that from our text. Um, and the text is out of 1 Kings 19. This message or this text was used a few months ago, I think end of May, and it was Elijah on Mount Carmel, and then when he goes out to Mount Sinai. But there's a little bit of a different focus here this morning. So if we could, as is our custom at Riverside, I'm bringing a little Riverside to y'all. If you would stand, I'd like to read this text all together. And this is 1 Kings 19, starting in verse 1. And if you would read it with me, we'll read the whole chunk. It's about eight verses. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, so may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Then he, Elijah, was afraid and rose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he may die, saying, It is enough now, O Lord. Take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, 
And behold, there was at his head a cake baked on a hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the Mount of God. You can be seated. Okay, so this is one of the greatest ministry burnout moments in all of Scripture. Where he's had this incredible journey and he just totally burns out. And I want to tell the story a little bit of Elijah before and after. Because there's some things here in this scripture that I feel like the Lord's really got for us to understand uh, this morning. So Elijah, just to kind of give you the precursor here, Elijah is called a prophet of the Lord. And he has been prophesying in divided kingdoms. In the north is the kingdom of Israel. And the king during this particular period is a king called Ahab. In the south, it's King Asa in the 37th year of Asa's reign. The northern king Ahab uh, becomes king. And so there's these two divided nations opposing one another. And Elijah has been called as a prophet to call back the nation of Israel. Israel is the northern kingdom. And what happens in the northern kingdom is that when Ahab, this, uh, this king, the scriptures say uh, he doesn't honor God. And so what he does is he buys a mount called Mount Gerizim, which is there today, and he makes Samaria the capital of Israel. And he worships Baal. You guys heard of Baal? Baal means Lord or Master. So literally, he says, we're serving another Lord. He sets up Asherah poles uh, and worships Baal there on Mount Gerizim in Samaria. And Elijah, prophet of the Lord, is not too pleased with this. It's turning this nation away from the Lord. And so he uh, says to Ahab, God's going to strike your whole nation with a drought for what you've done. And then Ahab gets angry at him for that. And the Lord tells Elijah to run away, and he goes and he gets watered. Uh, he goes and lays down by a brook, he gets water, the ravens feed him. And then that dries up, and he gets sent up into uh, Sidon, which is Lebanon, Syria area today. And he stays there with a the widow, and you may know that story about the water and the oil and the bread. And But then what happens is the word of the Lord comes to him and says, you know what, it's time for the rain to come. The Lord says, it's time for the rain to come. And so he comes back into Israel, presents himself to Ahab and says, the Lord says it's time for the rain to come. And so he gets all the prophets of Baal, 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of Asherah. Uh, She was a a goddess. I can't talk too much about her in church. Uh, She's she's not a a polite or um, PG goddess. And. Her prophetesses, most likely, come on to the Mount, Mount Carmel with the prophets of Baal, and they have this big showdown. And you can read about that in, in uh, 1 Kings 18. It's a really interesting story. But what happens is that fire from heaven comes and consumes. The prophets of Baal are exposed as worshiping a God who isn't active, that doesn't demonstrate his power on earth like the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob does. And then Elijah does what he feels like is the thing to do. 
And he kills the 450 prophets of Baal. I'm imagining he also kills the 400 prophetesses of Asherah. The scriptures don't tell us that explicitly. And then right after that, he prays for rain. Rain comes and then Ahab goes back and tells Jezebel, the queen, all that Elijah has done. And that's where we pick up this story. And that's a lot. And I want to unpack a little bit of that is in some of the commentaries and some of the rabbinic traditions and also some of the Bible commentaries. There's this big discussion about whether or not God tells Elijah to call for the drought. Because in the scriptures, multiple times, the Bible says that the word of the Lord came to Elijah and said to him. But when he calls for the drought, we don't get that in the scriptures. It doesn't say the word of the Lord came to Elijah and said, call for a drought in Israel. It doesn't say that. And it also doesn't say, kill the prophets of Baal. It doesn't say, have a showdown on Mount Carmel where you call them out, mock them and make fun of them. Now, because it doesn't explicitly say that in the text doesn't mean that it isn't what God was doing. But it's enough of an omission that it makes you start to wonder. And there's this interesting thing that I think happens. Uh, When we get called by God and put in a place of leadership, whether it's in our homes, whether it's in our city or our jobs, uh, particularly with governmental leaders, God can call us, put us into leadership Tell us what to do. Show us the way to life. But sometimes we can get so impassioned and carried away in our own emotions and thoughts and feelings, own wisdom about how the world ought work, that sometimes we can start doing stuff that God hasn't explicitly told us to do. And then what does God do in this instance? He does what Elijah says. And I think it's a very interesting principle of leadership. Is that when God sets us up in leadership, he will honor the leader, even if sometimes the leader is not specifically listening to the voice of God. However, the result of this showdown, the drought, the prophets of Baal, the result of that for Elijah is what we read here this morning. He gets afraid. His circumstances come crashing in and down around him and he runs for his life. To Beersheba. And I I downloaded an app this week uh, that that sends off this alarm anytime there's a rocket fired into Israel. And this morning as I was getting up, rockets were being fired into Beersheba. And it's fascinating to me uh, that all those places, I mean, some some of y'all have been to Israel. uh, But it's fascinating to me that that stuff's still going on. There's all this stuff. But what Elijah does is he gets out of the north and he gets into the safe place. With Judah in the Judah and the result of all of his great power showdown is that he's afraid and he wants to die and he's alone. I want to talk about this for just a second. There's a lot of theology up underneath this that my, my teacher mind is now going, oh, I have to talk about this and I have to make sure we cover God's sovereignty and free will and predestination and all these things are going on in my head. Uh, I can't do that and I don't want to draw you into this uh, squirrel uh, cage up here. But there is something profound that God will let us act and move in a way that is either contrary to him or maybe isn't his best for us. 
but he will come and do what we've said. Because he set us up in leadership. He gave us partnership with him. He gave us free will and choice. And I wonder, there's this moment in Elijah's life where he has been zealous for the Lord. He wants this nation to turn back to God. He wants them to worship in spirit and in truth. But in his zealousness, what he's doing is he's fighting these massive battles. He's causing drought and calamity. He's opposing and then killing prophets of Baal. And I just wonder if this isn't a picture of what we sometimes do in this nation as believers. And go with me here. I think that sometimes we have such a hunger to turn our nation back. Well, let's just talk about America. And this could work in your own personal lives as well for your families and jobs. But sometimes I feel like we've got this real fierce hunger to turn our nation back. And so in the very godly desire for our nation to serve God and whatever you think that that means, whatever our politicians ought to be doing, it's your own sense of the matter. But we want to turn the nation back. And so a lot of times, what do we end up doing? You ever read Facebook rants, political Facebook rants? They're always so level-headed and nourishing, right? (sighs) Not my friends. Um, We start getting, trying to fight these fierce battles, trying to turn our nation back to God. And this anger and this hatred and it's you're wrong, you need to die stuff starts coming out of us. I've seen that so much. And I wonder if that isn't really the heart that God has for us. Elijah did that. He sought to kill the prophets of Baal. And so if you're, I mean, just do the math in your head. We worship God. We have a bad king, bad president, bad ruler. And he's worshiping with all of his cabinet and staff and prophets. They're all worshiping Baal. So if we could just vote them out or kill them, get rid of them, get a new king, then everything would be good. Right? Doesn't that sound exciting? No one wants to say yes to that. It's okay. We're not going to talk about that. But we have this hunger. We think, yes, this is the answer. Get rid of the king. Get rid of the ones that are spreading dissension. But what does that produce? Well, in Elijah's day, they all fell down and said, all right, your God is God. But we don't get any indication from the text that they began to serve him and love like him. It only made the king angry and the queen murderous. And Elijah got afraid. And in the same sense, this is what happened to Moses. There's some really great parallels between Moses and Elijah. But Moses did this same thing. He saw the oppression of his people raised in Pharaoh's house 40 years. He sees the oppression of the Hebrew people and he identifies with them and he wants to set his people free. And what does he do? Righteous anger stirs up in him. And what's he do? He kills the Egyptian slave master, right? Well, Israel sees their great deliverer who has come to murder people and set them free. And they all rally behind them and they go out of Egypt. Is that how it goes? No. The Hebrews ask him a very good question. Who made you ruler and judge over us? And Moses is terrified. And we get to this reality 
that you can't do God's work using Pharaoh's methods. You can't set an oppressed people free by using the same system of government and violence that oppressed them. They're enslaved because of violent murder. You can't set them free using murder. You need a new kingdom. And so Moses goes into the desert. He meets Yahweh. The Lord speaks 40 years as a shepherd. He comes back and now he's got a new message and a new kingdom. And there's a brand new response in the hearts of Israel. Scriptures tell us that he calls the elders of Israel together and tells them that God has spoken to him and that he's coming to set them free. And the Bible says that everyone says, we will follow you. Our God has come to set us free. And then they go out to Mount Sinai. This is the same thing that I think happens to Elijah. The first half or three quarters of his life, he's doing these power acts. Trying to set the nation free with this fierce Elijah-ness. And it doesn't seem to work. And so we find him hopeless, depressed, alone. Feeling like he's got nothing left. And I feel like this morning that that's a big part of maybe some of what's in this room today. I know for a fact it's what's in our nation. Hopelessness. Hopelessness about the direction that we're going. What is God's plan for us? Israel's in crisis. Politics are a mess. The only thing that's good is the Tao. Uh, But hopelessness. And I wonder this morning, if you guys have been feeling hopeless and and you're a believer in Jesus and you know him, uh, there's lots of causes for hopelessness. But if you're a believer in Jesus and you know him, you've experienced him and you're feeling a hopelessness, I wonder today if it isn't connected somehow to thinking that you can violently overthrow the stuff that you don't like and turn your family, your nation, your own heart back to God. Does this make sense? God is teaching Elijah something new. And the angel comes to him and he calls him to Mount Horeb. And Mount Horeb is Mount Sinai. And Mount Sinai is the place that God called Moses and Israel to birth a nation and to redeem them and call their hearts to the Father. Sinai is that place. And so Elijah gets called back there. And here's some more details of the story is that the Lord puts him up in a cave on Mount Horeb and Mount Sinai. And then he calls him out onto the mountain. And it says that the Lord passed by. That word passed by is the same word that's used when God passes by Moses on Mount Sinai. His glory and his goodness passes by. The Lord passes by in wind, fire, and earthquake. And is the Lord in that stuff? Not this time. And I've heard it taught... And it's a message that will preach that this isn't, I'm not about to destroy this, but I've heard it taught that God's not in the big things. He's in the little things. One of the problems with that is that 500 years earlier, God was in the big things. God came in fire and wind and smoke on Mount Sinai. But now when the fire and the wind and the earthquake and the smoke came, God wasn't in that. And he's teaching Elijah something new. He's teaching them how to hear him for something entirely different. And that's what I really want to focus on here now. Y'all connecting with this? All right. I tell stories to kind of set up and now I kind of want to 
give you my, my ideas and my points. Maybe that's pulling the veil back in my head too much. Uh, but what happens here now is that the mighty deeds of power in Elijah's life were for a lot of his solidifying in his call as a prophet. But now the still small voice begins to speak to him about inheritance, legacy, community. Because the Lord tells him immediately, the first thing the Lord tells him in that moment is to go and anoint Elisha, his successor. And that, from the text, as far as I can understand, it's the first time we get the meeting of Elijah or Elisha. It's kind of like showing up and hopefully none of you have been outsourced here in this room. Uh, But it's kind of like showing up to work one day and you get outsourced by meeting your replacement. And there's this moment where God says, anoint your replacement. But Lord, I'm in I'm in my peak. But maybe he wasn't thinking that because he asked the Lord, hey, can I just die? And maybe the Lord's like, no, but. It is time for you to go. Here's your, here's your successor. But what happens is the Lord begins to talk to Elijah, Elijah about community, inheritance, and legacy. And whereas the first part of his ministry was about deeds of power, trying to turn the nation back to God, the second part of his ministry seems to be about legacy and inheritance, anointing Elijah and that whole dynamic there. And this is a major part of Elijah's life and ministry. And there's this moment in scriptures in Malachi, the last line of the New Testament that at Riverside, we're told to tear out the divider between the Old and the New Testament. Scott makes us do that. If you've ever been to Israel, he'll make you do that. Uh, But the last thing spoken in the Old Testament is this prophecy from Malachi. I want to read this to you. Malachi 4, 4 and 5. Remember the law of my servant Moses and the statutes of Israel that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the awesome, the great and awesome day of the Lord. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. What in Elijah's ministry turns hearts from fathers to sons? Like, I read that and I go, I don't get that. Elijah calls for drought. He defeats the prophets of Baal. Like, nothing that he does is turning hearts. I think that moment here that is our focus here for the morning is the moment when God begins to turn Elijah's hearts to actually changing a nation. And here's my main point for the morning. Do you guys want to turn the hearts of your nation? Do you want to have your nation turned? Maybe you're not into politics and you don't care so much about America. That's okay. Do you want to have your own family turned? Do you want to have the hearts restored? I'm telling you here this morning, I don't think that you're going to do it by being violently opposed to something. I don't think it's going to happen that way. If that would work, if the kingdom was brought through violent opposition and bigotry, And fear and shame, it would have come already. We wouldn't be worried. We wouldn't need to be talking about this because we live in a great theocracy. The kingdom does not come that way. The message of Jesus is not that. 
The message of Elijah seems like it was that. But then the Lord turns his heart and he says, you need, if you want to turn the hearts of your nation, you need to turn the hearts of fathers to sons. You need to start thinking about Elisha. You need to start thinking about those that are coming before you or coming after you. And so here's my one linear moment for the morning. I have three things. If you're asking, what does it take to turn the heart of a nation? I have a great passion for that. I'm very concerned. Not with the politics of our country. I'm very concerned with the discourse of our country. The way people talk to one another about the things they don't like. I'm way more concerned about that. I think that maybe there's some stuff we're not doing that great. I'm not even going to get into that because I don't have the information and I'm not the one that's anointed as a leader for that. I am called and anointed to talk and love well. This is your sphere of influence. Some of you may have governmental positions and the Lord has a specific grace on your life for policy and understanding. Many of us, the grace on our life is to love well. When you become a politician, you still have that grace. Um, But what does it mean to turn hearts? One of the things that we see, number one, what does it take to turn a nation? Number one, I think, is a return to the covenant. When Elijah hits this ministry burnout and he's been fighting and violently opposed, God calls him back to the mountain, calls him back to Sinai, to the place where God birthed the nation, to the remembrance that it's God who authors your life. It's God who authors the destiny of this nation and that we can't move forward in our own hearts or in this country until each of us recognize and submit to that reality that it's God's covenant promise that will lead us forward. The next thing that happens I see in this text is that Elijah on Mount Sinai learns something new in a new way. He was used to the thunder and the lightning, but now God's talking in the whisper. It's hard to learn something new, especially for religious people. Because I get comfortable in my knowledge and understanding of God, but when he wants to teach me something new that maybe expands on what I know already, it feels pretty destabilizing. So there's a really important aspect of learning how to learn something new. That if God is talking to you in a new way and we learn to listen to him in a new way, that we can let him. And I'm not going to go, since Daryl called me his smartest friend, I feel compelled to give you some neurological brain science evidence for this. Uh, But I don't have time for that. So ask me after if you want to hear about uh, brain science. The brain, here's one point. The brain literally develops neurological pathways to process and think through information. And when we think and meditate on an angry, wrathful, vengeful God, what stirs up in our mind is something called the limbic system, which is the ancient part of the brain that deals with fear, fight and flight response mechanisms. If you have a conception of an angry God, you have a very strong emotional connection to God. It's like being in an accident or getting in a fight. Your endorphins fire. You feel very alive. But it's tension. It's fear. It's anxiety. What we did this morning in worship is that we spent 30 minutes meditating on a good God. And literally in your brains, what happens when you meditate on a good God is that another part of your brain begins to be activated. It's called the anterior cingulate. And the anterior cingulate is the part of your brain that deals with empathy and social awareness. Your thoughts of others and love. 
And brain science has shown that as you meditate on a concept of a good and loving God for 20 minutes or more, your limbic system shuts down or decreases and your anterior cingulate increases. Translation, this morning, love cast out fear in worship. That's what's going on in your brains. And you're learning as you come and sit in his presence and sing these songs and listen to guys like me talk about stuff that maybe don't make any sense. Your brains are actually having to learn something new in a brand new way. New neurological pathways are being developed. So if you would like to learn something new about God that you feel like you've reached your ceiling, physically, cognitively, for your mental health, come to church and worship. That will change the way your brain processes information. You will have better social awareness and more love and less fear and anxiety if you come to this place and worship God. That's a scientific fact. How's that for church? Um, So we need a new way to process information. And lastly, I think a focus on discipleship inheritance instead of violent opposition. I do think that there's a place for opposition in your face. It's my way or the highway. I think 9-11 was an example of that. We needed to do something. But I think for most of us, for most of our lives, violent opposition only makes us angry. And that if we want to have the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of fathers to sons and the hearts of the sons to the fathers, then we need to learn how to love well. And I really do think that's an answer. And if the team would come back up here, um, I want to just finish with an invitation that if you feel anxious and fearful about anything in your life, but specifically I'm feeling like this morning, if you feel anxious and fearful about the direction of this nation and you've stood in violent opposition to something, and maybe that hasn't produced anything in your life, in your heart, except more fear and anxiety. I believe there's an answer for that.